was advertised as the best job in the world. Caretaker of an Australian tropical island on the Great Barrier Reef. You may have seen it in the news. The job description was to explore the islands of the Great Barrier Reef, swim, snorkel, make friends with the locals, and generally enjoy the tropical Queensland climate and lifestyle, as well as a salary of £73,500. The job came with a £2 million beach house, a swimming pool, and for some strange reason in the advert, a golf cart. Not surprisingly, the job attracted a huge interest. Applications came in from over 34,000 people from every country on earth, apart from North Korea and a couple of African states. It generated even more interest with what turned out to be a hoax application from Osama bin Laden. After a four-day rigorous selection process involving 16 finalists, it was announced this week that Ben Southall, a 34-year-old charity fundraiser from Hampshire in England, had been chosen as the successful candidate. In his acceptance speech, he said, and he wasn't chosen for his fluency, I don't think, but anyway... To go away, I quote directly, to go away now as the island caretaker for Tourism Queensland and the Great Barrier Reef is an extreme honour. I hope I can fill the boots as much as everybody is expecting. I quote directly. My swimming is hopefully up to standard and I look forward to all the new roles and responsibilities that my task involves. Well, I wonder if you are envious. Do you think caretaker of a tropical island is the best job in the world? Or maybe you think, we could take a vote on this, your job is the best job in the world. Or would you like to quit it for some other job, like caretaker of a tropical island? So let me ask you a question. In the best job in the world rankings, where would you place pastor of a church? Well, you probably wouldn't know unless you have been or are the pastor of a church. Failing that, I would suggest that you examine the experience of someone who has been or is the pastor of a church. And on Sunday evenings this year, we've been studying a letter in the New Testament part of this book, the Bible, which was written to a young man who was just that. He was pastor of a church. However, the young man in question, whose name was Timothy, had not applied to be the pastor of the church in the Greek city of Ephesus in the first century. And there certainly weren't thousands of applications for his job. In the Preach the Word series of sermons on 1 Timothy, the American pastor Kent Hughes, who incidentally is now retired and worships uh, in the church of our pastor-elect Paul Reese, and whose son Kerry is the pastor-designate to take over from Paul, uh, has got a wonderful commentary and series of sermons on 1 Timothy. He writes this, No congregational call 
had been extended to Timothy. Rather, the Apostle Paul had picked him up by the scruff of the neck and dropped him there, that's Ephesus, like a player on his apostolic chessboard. There is no indication that anyone in Ephesus had asked him to come, much less appointed him or elected him to leadership. We sense from the opening chapter of this letter that Timothy would rather be somewhere else. And who could blame him? When many members of the church looked down on him, while others in the leadership persisted in propagating false teaching that he had to counter. No wonder Timothy, timid Timothy by nature, would probably have preferred to be somewhere else maybe on a tropical island, as caretaker. And that's why the Apostle Paul, who appointed him to this position as pastor, writes this letter to Timothy, as we've seen, as we've gone through the series, right at the opening of the letter, after sending greetings at the beginning, he immediately launches into his charge to Timothy in verse 3 of the opening chapter. This is what he writes. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus. Don't quit, Timothy. Stay there and fulfill God's calling in that needy church, in that needy city. We've called our series on 1 Timothy, Building a Healthy Church. And what we've seen, if you've been with us, and if you've not, I encourage you to download and listen or get a tape or DVD, We have seen that one of the keys to a healthy church, if not the most important key to a healthy church, is a healthy pastor. And that is why it is vital that Timothy, despite all the problems and pressure of being a pastor, must stay in place and stay healthy. So, how does a pastor stay healthy? Spiritually healthy. And even physically healthy. So he can kick a football, but we won't even go there. Uh, Today we look at the answer as we focus on a pastor's, what I want to call, a pastor's priorities. And we turn to Paul's words to Timothy, which are recorded in chapter 4 of the letter, verses 11 through 16. So again, if you can open your Bibles, we're just going to focus on this half a dozen verses. It's important to have it open in front of you. We're just going to simply explain the plight, what is written here. It's page 1193. If you don't have a Bible, just get one from the pews or uh, uh, ask someone to pass one to you, will you? Paul continues with what he's been talking about earlier in the chapter. What Timothy should be teaching and refuting. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, 
you will save both yourselves and your hearers. This is God's word for us this evening. Now, the priorities for a pastor are summed up in the conclusion of this section. Verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine. Those are the two great priorities for a pastor and for any Christian, but particularly for a pastor. Because if a pastor gets this wrong, those that he teaches and those to whom he models the Christian life will also get it wrong. Your life, how you behave, and your doctrine, what you believe, are inextricably linked together. There's a very close connection between the two. But let's begin by looking more closely at each of them from this section, because they come out very clearly in this, uh, and particularly the two pressing problems that Timothy is facing in his, in his situation in the church in Ephesus. Okay, and don't switch off, as I said, by saying, well, I'm not a pastor, and the more you talk about this, the least likely I am ever to be a pastor. Only God knows that. It's not your choice or mine. The priorities for the pastor, I repeat, are the same as those for the for those he pastors and to whom he models them. Okay, priority number one, watch your life, how you behave. Paul begins, as we've seen, by telling Timothy, command and teach these things. These things are the things he's just been talking about. You need to go back uh, to last week's message to pick up on the things. Uh, it wasn't last week, but the last time I think Tim was preaching on this, Tim Bridges, go back to what he was preaching on there. These things may even be most of what he's written already about what Timothy is to teach uh, positively and negatively as refutes false teaching. But as Paul says this, he's aware, knowing the situation in Ephesus, that Timothy has got a problem. A problem of credibility. Nothing to do with his gifting, whether he's a good pastor or not, but with his age. So notice how he alludes to Timothy's problem. Verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. In, many, in the ancient world, and still in many parts of the world today, sadly, not in our society so much, age was respected, for wisdom and age were closely connected. Hence the fact that those who were called elders in churches and in society were usually drawn from those who were older. And by this criterion, Timothy doesn't fit the bill because he is not old enough. People in the church, looked down on him because he was young. Now, the word young used here in the original language in Greek culture referred to anyone up to the age when you qualified for military service, which was 40 years old. So here's a word of encouragement. If you're in your 30s, biblically, you're young. We know, of course, that Paul called Timothy, enlisted him in his missionary team when he was on his missionary journey in Acts 16. And that was 15 years ago. Assuming Timothy then was a young man, let's say in his late teens, he's probably now in his mid-30s as pastor of the church in Ephesus. But he is not old enough to command respect from some of the church members in Ephesus, especially those who are older and even some who are elders, some of whom Timothy had to oppose because of their false teaching. They looked down on Timothy 
And Timothy, being timid by nature, obviously found this very hard to deal with. I guess all of us do. So how should Timothy, or anyone in a similar situation, whose authority is undermined by such unjustified attitudes, respond? In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on 1 Timothy, John Stott writes very, very clearly. This is what he says. The great temptation, whenever our authority is questioned, threatened, or resisted, is to assert it all the more strongly and so become autocratic, even tyrannical. But leadership and lordship are two different concepts. The Christian leads by example, not by force, and is to be a model to all who invite a following, not a boss who compels one. And this we see in Paul's answer. Look at what he says. And this would, of course, been read out to the whole church in Ephesus as well. Look at his answer to Timothy's problems. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, the word translated example there is literally a model. Originally, the word was used of a hollow mold which was shaped and stamped in the image of something and which then impresses that image onto a third thing. I was thinking of a good example here. When our children were small, I'm going to embarrass my daughter sitting down there, uh, Nita, my wife, used to make them, uh, for a sweet sometimes, she used to make jelly in the shape of a rabbit. Becky will tell you about it afterwards if you're really interested. But... uh, (laughs) How did she do it? Well, she didn't get some jelly and sort of mold it all around. We, we had a mold. I'm sure you've seen these kind of things. Ha, come on, be honest. How many of you have got these at home when you were kids? Oh, that's wonderful. Good. Okay. <laughs> what you do is you mix the jelly, and, and the mold is in the shape of a rabbit. You pour the jelly into the mold, and then you leave it to set for a few hours, and then it's set in the morning or later on, and then you carefully shake it out, and lo and behold, guess what shape it is? A rabbit, yes, you're with me. That's absolutely right. Okay. Now, Paul tells Timothy, you're to be a model shaped in the character of Christ, which the believers and even your critics will see and imitate. Uh, He uses the same idea in another of his letters, which he wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 6, 1, 6 and 7. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and so you became, same word, a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So, what should the model look like? Well, Paul goes on to tell us. He lists five character traits of a model pastor. Look at them very briefly. Won't spend a long time on them. The first is speech. Not talking here about Paul Timothy's preaching. He's talking about his conversation. What he says to others and how he speaks to them rather than the formal content of his preaching and teaching. In another letter, yet another letter to another church in Colossae, he writes, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And along with speech goes life. Now, this is not the same word in verse 16, what's your life and doctrine. Uh, It's a word that covers conduct and action. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said his followers would be identified not just by what they said, but by their actions, by their fruit, he said, 
you will recognize them. Matthew 7, 16, and also again in, in 20. These two things go together, speech and life. Along with these two outward signs are two inward factors. Firstly, he says, in love. The love he speaks about is not normal love, human love. It is the love of Christ. A love like Christ, which is expressed to others in how we respond to them. Particularly people like Timothy's critics, who look down their noses at him. People who don't deserve it. As Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, Christ's love compels us. When you become a Christian, God pours his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that love is then expressed to people who aren't sometimes very lovely. Absolutely essential qualification if you want to be a pastor or a Christian. Along with that goes faith, which means trusting God and faithfulness to him in all circumstances, despite all circumstances, rather than deviating from the faith or departing from the faith, as some in the church were doing. Paul already focused on this in chapter 1, if you were here. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so shipwrecked their faith. Hang in there, Timothy. Stay faithful. Stay close. Stick with the faith that's being passed on to you. And finally, he adds the word purity. The word translated purity there can simply mean sincerity or purity of motives. But it's most likely in this context to refer to sexual purity. Uh, Warren Wisby comments, uh, impurity is important as we live in this present evil world. Ephesus was a center, it's well known, for sexual impurity. And the young man Timothy was faced with temptations. He must have a chaste relationship with the women in the church... 1 Timothy 5.2, and keep himself pure in heart, mind, and body. Given that that the context is those who look down on Timothy because he was young, this must be an area he was particularly vigilant in. Uh, Paul repeats this in the next letter that he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee the evil desires of youth. If you grew up the authorized version, it's uh, flee youthful lust that war against the soul. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, notice as we come back to it, this is just a profile, a character picture of what Timothy is to be like. But notice the context in response to those who look down at him. This is not easy. Take it from me. Anyone who's in leadership, in work, or whatever it is, when people challenge you, the great danger is to become more authoritarian. The Christian way is to respond with character. William Barclay comments, the advice that was given to Timothy was the hardest possible advice to follow, yet it was the only possible advice. The advice was that Timothy must silence criticism by conduct. J.B. Phillips paraphrases verse 13 very neatly. He says, don't let people look down on you because you are young See that they look up to you because you're an example to them. There's a challenge to someone here who's under criticism. You tend to lash out, respond, defend yourself. Don't do it. Let your character speak rather than your words. So Timothy must watch his life closely. That's a pastor's priority, priority for every Christian. So let's just pause for a moment before we come to the second priority and ask, 
as I asked myself as I prepared this, how am I getting on? What sort of model are people seeing? Am I able to say with the Apostle Paul, follow me, Philippians 3.17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live, here's the same word again, according to the pattern we gave you. Follow the leader. Follow me. Now, many of us, if we're Christians, we're reluctant to say that, aren't we? We say, follow Jesus. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. Yes, he's the perfect example. But we should be able to say, follow my example as well. As I follow Christ, and as I make progress, and watch my life closely. Okay, that's the first priority. But along with it goes a second priority, linked with another problem that Timothy had in the church. Priority two, watch your doctrine, what you believe. Timothy's problem in Ephesus was not just personal about those who looked down on him because he was young. More critically, as we've seen throughout this letter, Paul's overriding concern is for the health of the church and believers in Ephesus, which is threatened by false teachers who were teaching false doctrines. That is also Timothy's problem. And Paul addresses this in that verse we looked at, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, right at the beginning of the letter. He's given his quick greetings. Now he says to Timothy, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Paul would like to be present in Ephesus himself. He plans to be there as soon as possible. But meanwhile, he charges and authorizes Timothy to deal with the situation. So how does Timothy deal with it? Well, notice Paul's answer to this second problem Timothy faces. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. The antidote to false teaching and false teachers is the truth of this book, the Scriptures, God's Word. So Paul says that when the Christians in Ephesus meet together, prominence must be given above all else to the public reading of Scripture. This, of course, had a long and honored place in Israel's history. If you read all the commentaries on 1 Timothy, they say the classic example of this is Nehemiah chapter 8, which, interestingly, Colin preached on this morning, when Ezra the priest stood up and read aloud the word of God in the city of Jerusalem. It was a normal practice in Jewish synagogues. You would meet together, The scrolls would be brought out of the law or the prophets, unrolled and read. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he went to his home synagogue in Nazareth, opened the scroll of the book of Isaiah, read from it, commented on it. And added to this, by the time we get to 1 Timothy in the early churches in the New Testament, early gospel accounts of the life of Jesus were already beginning to spread around. Glad you're here this evening, not watching nonsense and the Da Vinci Code film and all this about the church invented this four, three, four centuries later. Listen, people were spreading and reading accounts of the life of Jesus right from the beginning. They also read letters from the apostles, Paul's own letters would be read, Paul instructed. When you get a letter from me, he said, see that it's read in other churches as well. Let me just say a word about this because some of you study theology for your pains, which is a good thing. Uh, Paul's authority is still questioned today. 
So, well, this is Paul. That's Jesus. Paul added all these things later on. He's not got the same authority as the rest of the Bible. Very interesting verse uh, in 2 Peter. 2 Peter is one of the last letters to be written in the New Testament. And the writer, Peter, uh, talks about, uh, he refers to the letters. Our dear brother Paul wrote to you with all the wisdom God gave him, along with a significant comment. He says, his, this is 2 Peter 3.16, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, to which we'd all say, Amen, which ignorant and unstable people distort, notice these words, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Right at the beginning, Paul's letters were given authority because he was an apostle, as was Peter and John, of course. So Timothy is to devote himself to this, to the public reading of Scripture. It's sad to say that that has little prominence in many churches today. Much though I love singing, I could sing forever sometimes, we need to be concerned when singing has a greater priority and importance in our thinking and our practice than the Scriptures when we meet together. And in fact, of course, what we sing should reflect what the scriptures say and what God has said to us. And so the, the scriptures were to be read publicly. And then he says to Timothy, in addition to that, read the scriptures out and then devote yourself to preaching, to explaining what they mean. We saw that again with Ezra this morning. And to teaching, applying the scriptures to people's lives. What the implications are so that people don't just hear about it, they do something about it. The first description of early Christian churches comes from the middle of the first century, about 155 AD. This is not, of course, in the Bible. It's long after the New Testament was finished. Uh, But Justin Martyr, so-called because he eventually gave his life for Christ, he wrote uh, an apology, a defense of the Christian faith to the Roman government. It's quite interesting to read what what they actually did in, in those early days. Listen to this, very interesting. On the day called the sun, Sunday... A gathering takes place of all who live in the towns or in the country in one place. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then the reader stops and the leader, by word of mouth, impresses and urges the impression of these good things. Then we all stand together and send forth prayers. Interesting, isn't it, to think this is what the early Christians did. Uh, so Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching, explaining, applying God's Word. And Timothy, he says, don't neglect the gift that God has given you to do this. Using the gift God has given him, verse 14. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy had been endowed by God by the Holy Spirit, with a particular Spirit-inspired gift to preach and teach God's Word. Greek word is charisma. It's a gift of God's grace. And this had been confirmed on a particular occasion when a body of elders had laid their hands on him and spoken God's Word over him and addressed him about the gift that God had given him. God has given us all charismatic spiritual gifts. Timothy's particular gift was that of preaching and teaching God's Word. And of course, in this situation, Paul says, God has called you to serve in that church, so don't neglect the gift God has given you. Use the gift or lose it. Think of the man in the parable who buried his talent in the ground. 
No, he is to use the gift. Later on in second letter to Timothy, uh, Paul says the same thing in the opening chapter. 2 Timothy 1.6, he says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. This may be a different occasion. One may have been Timothy's conversion here. This may have been what we'd call later his ordination, setting apart for ministry. But the principle is the same. Here's Timothy. Let me remind you again. Young man, looked down on, timid by temperament, faced with aggressive false teachers and their false teaching, is also to set an example and to use the gift with which God has equipped him to face this challenge. For as Paul tells him in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So in summary, these are the priorities of a pastor. Watch your life, how you behave. Watch your doctrine, what you believe. Now they're inextricably linked. What you believe will determine how you live. If you think this life is all there is and you're not a Christian, when you leave this life, that's it, and you just go into non-existence, you will live a certain way. If you believe that when you leave this life, you will stand before God and give an account of your life and your eternal destiny will hang on how you live your life in this life, it will affect the way you live. Whatever you believe affects how you live. And how you live should be consistent with what you believe. So that people say to you, you went to church twice yesterday. Why on earth would you do that when it was a lovely day? You could have been doing other things. Well, because I had more important things to do. I wanted to go and worship with God's people and hear God's word. It's consistent. John Stott again. So I was good at summarizing these things. He says, then there will be no dichotomy between his public and his private life or between his preaching and his practice. Instead, he will manifest that most necessary of all leadership qualities, personal authenticity. You've got to walk the talk. As I was looking at the BBC um, webpage, on the same page, I noticed something rather amusing. Well, it wasn't for the person concerned. There was a report that the chief executive of a company which has provided more than 5,000 speed cameras in the UK was caught driving at 102 miles an hour on a 70-mile-per-hour road in Suffolk, banned from driving for six months, fined 300 pounds, and had six points added to his license. doesn't look good when you're promoting speed cameras and breaking the speed limit. How much more serious when a Christian, especially a Christian leader, fails to practice what he preaches. How vital that he makes it his priority to focus on what he believes and teaches and how he lives. So Paul tells Timothy, and he uses an athletics picture that we saw earlier in this chapter, the same kind of picture of athletics. He says, this requires total dedication. Look at verse 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. The word progress is an interesting word again. In, in Greek, it's a word used, it's a Greek military term. It's used of advanced troops who clear obstacles and make it possible for others to follow. So Timothy and every pastor, Paul says, you need to take a lead. Set an example. Don't be content with where you're at. Don't be content with how you live. 
Don't be content with what you believe. Make progress. Keep moving ahead and set a lead so that other people can follow it. I grew up with the Bible. Some of you know I've told you before I knew hundreds of verses when I was a child. I've studied the Bible at university and college. But I tell you, I'm not content with my Bible knowledge and I'm not content with my doctrine. I want to know more. I'm certainly not content with my life. I want to be a better model and example and only my family probably know the reality and only God knows the truth. We're all to strive to make progress and the things go hand in hand. As God speaks to you through his word, it challenges you, brings you up short and you say, I need to do something about that. I need to put that right. I need to be more like Jesus in that area. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Again, Warren Wisby, another quote from great American pastor preacher. He says, as good, speaking of pastors, he says, as good ministers, we preach the word. As godly ministers, we practice the word. As growing ministers, we progress in the word. So, if the Lord who alone sees hearts and minds, motives, everything else, if he was to give a progress report on where I am today and where you are, I wonder what he would say, what he would read. Am I, are you, to quote the final verse of 2 Peter, growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, let me say this very clearly, you cannot stand still. You'll either make progress, you'll go backwards. I know some people think, Christians, I've got to a certain level. I'll just stay there. You know, it's just better than most people. The illustration I've used before, it's worth hearing again. It's like trying to go up an escalator the wrong way. Don't do it, by the way, but if you try running up an escalator the wrong way, if you run fast enough and hard enough, you can keep making progress. If you pause for a minute and say, I'm doing really well here, you start going backwards down the hill again. So are you making progress? You're going backwards. Watch your life, watch your doctrine. Then he finished. Let's conclude where we began and ask, what is the best job in the world? Is it caretaker on a tropical island? You might think so, but in actual fact, it's a fantasy job. It's just actually the job was a PR exercise to encourage us all to go to Queensland on our holidays, which we haven't mind, but anyway... Um, in fact, the one thing I haven't mentioned is that the job only is for six months. And then poor Ben will have to get back to reality. So, what about pastor of a church? Is that the best job in the world? I was discussing with Rodney, and he said, yes, definitely. Certainly isn't in terms of personal pleasure and convenience. But I, I would suggest something to you. It's one of, if not the most important jobs in the world. Why? Because of the lasting effects. As Paul's final words in this section tell us. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Stick at it. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Now you say, surely only God can... Save someone, I can't save myself. That's not what Paul taught. Exactly, he's not contradicting himself. 
Paul knew how people were saved through the grace of God. But he also knew that God saved people and God used people to make his salvation known to others through what they believed and taught and what they lived out because they could have a tremendous effect on other people because God uses people as a means of salvation. And we ourselves are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. People who focused on these things and persevered in making what they believed and what, how they lived their priority, increasingly becoming like Christ, set an example to others and so drew other people into God's kingdom and led to their salvation. And while the immediate context is to Timothy the pastor to stay in Ephesus, let me suggest one other thing. As I read these words, they came home with fresh input to me. Take the word Ephesus out. What is God saying to some of us this evening? Stay in, you put where God has placed you at the moment. Stay in that university class where you're the only Christian. Don't give up. Stay in that family where it's tough to be a Christian. Stay in that job, in that situation. Stay in that church. You don't get on very well with everybody. Stay in Ephesus. Because if that's where God has placed you, and that's where he wants to use your gifts, whether they be that of a pastor teacher like Timothy, whatever gift God has given you, spiritual gift, stay where it is, stick it out, persevere in it. For what you believe, how you behave, will have an eternal consequence for your life, and not just for you, but for others as well. This is not a six-month appointment. It's a lifetime calling. So, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. May God help me. May he help you as well. Let's pray together.